Welcome to the Polari Podcast with me, Sophia Blackwell. And me, Paul Burston. We're going to be talking about some of the best LGBT plus literature in the UK and beyond and presenting some footage that was recorded at the event on September 25th at a socially distanced evening at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. Paul, how was it getting back upon stage again after six months? It was strange. It was um, very exciting. I mean, I got very, very excited. Um, I hadn't been on stage since Polari in Heaven back in February, which was one of our biggest ever events. And I ended the night saying, we'll be back, not knowing what was going to happen, of course, in a few weeks' time. So um, everything after that obviously was cancelled or, or moved online. Um, so to do a live event again was a real thrill and to have an audience. Um, and and it's, 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 there's such a loyal, warm audience at Polari as well. So you, sort of, you really feed off that as a performer. So um, it was great to see so many familiar, familiar faces and so many friendly faces, which I think is part of the appeal of Polari anyway as a performer, because you've got this audience that are really on your side and willing you to be good. They're not sort of sitting there waiting to be impressed by you. They're, they're, they're already on, on side. So it sort of creates a really nice warm atmosphere. So can you tell me a little bit about how you worked with the RVT to put together the event that we're going to be hearing the highlights of? So basically... Um, Shortly after I did Polari in Heaven um, in in February, um, I had a call from Dave Cross, who is the events manager at RVT, who I've known for many years. He's, he actually DJed at a previous event we did in Heaven. And he asked me if I would consider putting an event on at the RVT. So at the time, we were planning it to possibly be our birthday event in November. And we had a lineup all lined up. I can't really reveal reveal what that was um, for various reasons, but we had various people lined up for it. And then when the situation all changed, um, the person that, that I had booked as a headliner it isn't able to get here and be here physically. So the whole thing sort of went onto the back burner. So that may happen at some point in the future. Um, but in the meantime, when the change came in in July, when the when the lockdown lifted. We got back in touch again and discussed another possible day for doing an event. And Dave was really was really keen. I mean, like all like many venues, they're you know trying to do their best, and they are doing a really great job at the RVT in terms of sticking to all the rules. Um, but getting people in for such a short little window because it shuts at ten o'clock is very different. You know, difficult. And I've, I've been down a couple of times with friends to. Um, just go for a drink there and there were very few people there as there would be on a, on a typical night so and also because they're an entertainment venue really in the week and that's really what brings an audience in so it sort of suited both of us really um it was it was it made sense for them made sense for me because i it's a it's a, it's a very local platform i live literally around the corner from there just on the corner in oval so i can walk there um and not and avoid public transport and it's great for them because I bring, you know, a, a guaranteed audience because it sold out really, really quickly, as I knew it would. Um, and also because we were, we'd, we'd announced the shortlist for the prize back in the end of July. And there'd been quite a buzz around this shortlist. Well, there's two shortlists, as I'm sure we'll talk about. And there was such a buzz about it on social media. So I knew the next time we did an event, if I featured some of the artists who were on those lists, some of the authors were on the shortlist that that would sort of tie in with the whole kind of theme around the prize and the buzz around the prize. So it was just the timing was right, the venue was right, the artists were, were the right ones. Everything just fell together really, really neatly. I was really pleased. And of course, having, having Barbara Brownskirt, who will never win any prizes for anything. <laughs> <laughs> Bless her. 
um, was, was an added bonus. So... Absolutely. We love a bit of Barbara. So that takes us on to to the prize. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, this year's shortlists and where we are with it at the moment? Because your priority back in the summer was very much promoting it and promoting the amazing writers who who were involved. And we had two of them at at the event, as well as, as you say, Barbara Brownskirt, who's uh, always a delight. Well, well, the, I mean, the, pride, the Polari First Book Prize is in its 10th year this year, which is, um, I never thought we'd see that. That's an astonishing thing. Um, it launched in 2011. Um, we've had a really wide diversity of winners. Um, it's open to writers who are writing books with LGBTQ plus themes and characters. But apart from that, it's pretty, pretty wide. So it can be any genre. So we've had poetry winning we've had um, a memoir we've had short story collections we've had novels so it's quite a quite a wide range of of books um, that have been submitted um, last year we decided to add another prize for authors who aren't debuts because I think a lot of the a lot of the time in the industry there's a real, real focus on debuts um, and authors on their second or third or fourth book tend to get far less um, press attention so I thought if we, if we introduce a second prize for similar criteria, writers born or based in the UK and Ireland, writing books with the themes I, I described, um, but it can be a book at any stage of their career apart from a debut. So that was launched last year and it was won by Andrew Macmillan for his second poetry collection. Um, and now, now we're on to the second year of, of that prize. So we've got two prizes running concurrently. Um, the shortlists were both were announced in at the end of July, and the winners are announced on October the 15th. And I'm very excited about this year's shortlist because they are, they really are the most diverse we've ever had, I think, in terms of the cultural, racial, demographics, the backgrounds of the writers, the diversity of expression, um, gender, identities. Um, So they're really, really diverse collection of books. And... Um, as one of the judges was saying to me earlier on, it was very it was very difficult this year because of the six shortlisted books on each of those shortlists, the price really could have gone to any one of those six books. They were all so good. The quality was so high. It was really difficult to try and sort of split hairs and decide on the winner for each category. Um, but that was obviously down to the judging panel because I have a different... Um, I have a collection of judges who... Some stay on, some rotate, and we also have the winners. Last year's winner joins the the panel for the next year. So we've got currently we've got Andrew McMillan on the Polari Prize panel, and we've got Angela Chadwick, who won the Polari First Book Prize last year on on that panel. So we have two groups of judges that make the decisions um, with me kind of coordinating them. And I think the, the amount of press attention we've had over the last couple of years, which is largely thanks to our wonderful PR people, um, FMCM Associates, um, thanks to them, awareness of the prize has grown. So we've been, uh, we've had winners um, being reported about in the Times of India, <laughs> as well as in mm. the bookseller and all the obvious places. So I think awareness of the prize has grown Um and so with that comes greater diversity because obviously the wider the reach, the more chances there are of there being a diverse collection of people within that reach. So it's changed a lot and grown. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm particularly proud of it this year because I think it, it, sort of, it really speaks to the moment that we're in. And I think there's been a real um, shift in the dialogue within publishing about diversity over this last year. And 
you know, Bernadine Evaristo winning the Booker and so on and all the discussions that were raised around that. I mean, she's been an extraordinarily supportive person. She, she, she was a prize judge last year. She's been super, super amazingly supportive of Polari and the prize over the years. Um, but the dialogues that she helped open up as well, I think that all contributed to the mood. And I was just so pleased that when the submissions came in, they kind of reflected that and gave us the chance to reflect on that because they, it, it, it felt right. It all felt really of the moment. As Paul says, we had an embarrassment of riches in our performers at Polari at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. First up, we met Amru Al-Khadi, whose book Life is a Unicorn, A Journey from Shame to Pride and Everything in Between is shortlisted for the Polari First Book Prize 2020. Then we met Kate Davies, whose book In at the Deep End is on the shortlist for non-debuts at the Polari Prize this year. And later on in the evening, we spent some quality time with one of our favourites, Barbara Brown skirt who as usual is shortlisted for absolutely nothing whatsoever now i know what you must be thinking a muslim who's also a drag queen isn't that a bit like a vegan who slaps cows (laughs) are you sure you're a lesbian (laughs) alice and i were shopping for vintage clothes in st newton she was in for a fake I was hoping to find some tweed trousers that didn't smell of funerals. I'm going to start with a poem from volume three. Furry purses. In the beginning, there was the word. And it was... Judy. Good evening, everyone. My name is Paul. It's been seven months since my last Ferrari. Seven long, lonely, anxiety-inducing, ego-sapping months. I have been cocooned, and not in a good way. But now I've re-emerged like a butterfly. And it feels like home to be here. So thank you so much for coming. Please give yourselves a round of applause. It's very good to be back, and also to be back at the Army team, which was actually my spiritual home, and has been since the very late 80s when I first came here with my Ben Vaughan, and I now live around the corner, I've been my regular for a very, very long time. As many of you know already, Blurry is an LGBTQ literary salon. We've been running since 2007. We started in gay bars in Soho, and in 2009 we moved to the Royal Festival Hall, where we've been based... After Paul welcomed the audience to the venue, we got to meet Glamru, in my case, for the first time. Amru Arkadi's memoir, Life is a Unicorn, is available now from Fourth Estate, and as I said earlier, it's on the shortlist for the Polari First Book Prize this year. However, the person we met at that event at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern was Glamru, in full drag, in some of the highest and most fabulous glittery heels that I've ever seen. And here's a little extract from their performance. Now, for those of you who don't know who I am, which is a notion I find profoundly unlikely, <laughs> my name is Glamour Al Khalifa Al Hayati Lejani. Say it with me. <laughs> Lovely. Let's do it together. Glamour Al Khalifa Al Khalifa Al 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 Hayati. Al Hayati. Yeah, Jenny. Yeah, Jenny. Oh, rolls off the tongue. Lovely. 
<laughs> now I know what you must be thinking. A Muslim who's also a drag queen. Isn't that a bit like a vegan who slaps cows? <laughs> but actually, I'm of the impression that the Quran is the best girl's go-to guide on how to do a queer life. Nervous rustlings of white <laughs> Child-raised Muslim, I was taught that every time you commit a sin, you get bad points on your left shoulder, and every time you do good deeds, you get good points on your right. Now, sins could happen from the most natural of thoughts, like, I'm jealous of that girl's fuchsia pencil case, or, please, Allah, if I drink enough milk, would you just turn me white? <laughs> and good deeds were actually really hard to do, like, I don't know, helping save a homeless man's life age five, or genuinely feeling love for my mother whilst she chased me for wearing pink. <laughs> After Amru's performance, they sat down with Paul to discuss the pros and cons and the feeling of exposure that goes with writing a memoir. The two also discussed mothers and how they can be a lot of different things to us, including, in Amru's case, a compelling inspiration for their drag persona. Was it challenging? Yes. It was a bit like having an exorcism. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to say therapy, but you know, go with exorcism. No, <laughs> exorcism. <laughs> yeah, no, it was quite intense. And um, my editor was like, you know, in a couple of passes, she was a bit like, oh, you can still feel your journalistic tone because you're being quite objective about your own experiences. And actually, you need to be writing it as if they're happening on the page. <laughs> I was literally having to like close my eyes and remember something really traumatic and be like, okay, there was my mum with like the taser and there was like, okay, like, this is going on and remember it now, cry for an hour and then write it. So it was a lot, but really therapeutic. Ever since then, genuinely, I do feel like I've been exercised so much freer. Um, <laughs> six novels and I'm now writing a memoir yeah, I saw. for the first time and yeah. I'm actually finding it, even though I find novels are actually quite exposing actually, um, writing a memoir is very, very, very exposing. And were there, were there particular things that where you felt you needed to um, not avoid them but just sort of like catch them in a particular way or, or, or did you make a decision right from the beginning to be completely unfiltered about it? Yeah, I made the decision because I could either just go all the way or just do it sort of like I just had to be really honest about my family and stuff because yeah, I just I don't know. I just I felt like it was such a privilege to be given the money to do it that it was also like incumbent upon me to be as honest and revealing as possible. Particularly because like a lot of the people who read the book are queer Arabs. Um, and so I understand like the privileges that I have to be able to like live here and express these things without what well, I mean there is some consequence waiting for my fat work every day now um, um, but yeah so I wanted to just be as honest about my experiences so other queer Arabs could have something real to resonate with one of the things I found most moving about it was your relationship with your mother and my relationship with my mother has been a very important point in my life and I find writing about that very difficult because I'm always afraid of is she going to read this and be hurt by it but I can't I can't couch it in order to avoid her hurt feelings because that was my experience as a, as a queer child 
Um, was that an issue for you? Because it seems to me it's quite a central part of the book. Yeah, I mean, she's, your mom. everything that I write, whether it's TV or it always just ends up being about my mom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm dressed as hell. She hasn't read it. Partly because her English is actually not very good, and my Arabic's not great. Um, but with my mum, you know, I, I think I wrote it when I was seven, 27, and was therefore like in a little bit of a kind of, I only inter- interpreted her actions as they related to me, um, because I just experienced, you know, some of the abusive things she did, but also wonderful things she did. But by virtue of writing the book and basically having to think of her as her own character, I actually started to understand her her own story, um, which made me forgive her quite a lot. Because, you know, as a kid, you just think, why are you doing all these things to me? But, um, um, you know, throughout the book, I started to realize how much she was victim to a lot of patriarchal constructs um, in Bahrain and Dubai where we were, and the reason she became you know, violent or whatever she did was because of her response to how she was raised, and I never really got that view until I had to spend time writing her as a three-dimensional person, and then I was like, oh, you actually have your own story that's not all about me. Um, and, um, and she's iconic. Like By the end of it, I knew I needed to have a relationship with her again because she is the re- like look it's very complicated but like like she is really distressed by me being gay but she wants hired a welder to fix her into a dress so like, it's just quite hard to hate that <laughs> this comes across in the book yes. yeah. and I like that contradiction of, of of her essentially like informing my drag career, but hating it the most out of anybody in the universe. <laughs> um, and and I like and, and um, you know I'm, a, I'm I'm obsessed with her. I, it's like all of, like I'm, I think I'm a bit like Al Modavar was always obsessed by women, and he, he's always queering the memories of his mother. I think I like that with my mum. I, I sometimes think my drag character is my mum had she not been restricted by things in the Middle East. That's what I like. Sex 
so technically excellent that I thought anyone would have enjoyed it, regardless of their sexuality. It hadn't been perfect, obviously. I'd been pretty tentative about going down on her, and it had taken her a while to come, and my tongue got a bit tired halfway through. But she had come, and I felt sexy. I felt like an equal partner in the whole thing. I felt, more than anything, a huge sense of relief. Jane's side of the bed was empty. I scanned the room for my underpants and found them folded on a chair with the rest of my clothes. As I picked them up, I felt hot with horror for a moment. The crotch was as stiff as a board. <laughs> I honestly didn't quite turn on. And then I smiled again. I had been totally turned on, possibly for the first time in my entire life. As we said goodbye, I asked her, do you want to do this again sometime? No offence, she said. But once is usually enough for me. Have fun exploring the ladies, though. I wasn't offended. I practically bounced out of the warehouse, laughing my way through the streets of Patney Wick, people staring as I ran past. The reds and blues and yellows and pinks of the street art felt like they'd been painted just for me, a riot of rainbow against the grey sky. I'd never felt so alive. I wasn't weird or bad at sex. I wasn't an outsider. Definitely a lesbian, I texted Alice. A full one. <laughs> Gay clubs were my clubs now. Carhartt trousers, rainbows, team sports. But I'm a cheerleader. Ripple's drag race, pride parades, moonlight, the pet shop boys, vegetarian food. Oranges are not the only fruit. Oranges to New Black, Old Compton Street, San Francisco, the colour pink, KD Lang, Dusty Springfield, Brighton, musical theatre, Tegan and Sarah, lip syncing, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, Polari Salon. Some of the best things in the world belong to me. Lucky, lucky, lucky me. After Kate's performance, we met backstage for a couple of drinks and a discussion of our favourite night in the literary calendar, which of course has to be the Bad Sex Awards. Kate and I discussed sex-positive writing by women, we talked about different types of relationships, and we also spoke about the last time that Kate was on stage at the RVT, which was in 2008, as part of one of Timberlina's legendary bingo nights, which Paul and I also used to attend and very much enjoy. I think I think I occasionally did some poetry as part of them, but it wasn't quite as interesting as what Kate did, which was a burlesque balloon bingo routine. Apparently that was also the night that Kate slept with a woman for the first time, and in fairness, if I did something that elaborate, I would be expecting to get laid as a result of it as well. Here's me backstage talking to Kate Davies. You, your book is out in paperback now. Tell us a little bit about it. So, In at the Deep End is the story of Julia, who is a 26-year-old Londoner who has just had the worst one-night stand in the history of sex um, with a man who has accused her of breaking his penis. Um, and she kind of swears off sex for a while after that. But then she luckily has sex with a woman, and it's amazing, and she realises that she is, in fact, a lesbian. <laughs> so what else is the book about? Um, it's, it's about... It's about a woman discovering who she is, really. It's a coming-of-age novel, even though Julia is in her 20s. She kind of needs to figure out who she is. She used to be a ballet dancer, but she broke her ankle and had to give up her career. So she's kind of a bit lost at the beginning of the novel and searching for meaning in all kinds of ways. Um, it, a lot of it is about sex. Um, there are quite a lot of graphic descriptions of sex in the book. I mean, it, I kind of wanted to celebrate it. I just When I first started having sex with women, I was like, this is amazing, and why didn't I know all of these things that you could do? There's a, there's a description of this thing, which is one of the things I read out of the Polari Prize, mm-hmm. the Polari Salon tonight. Uh, yeah, I kind of wanted to talk about it. 
uh, more openly than I had seen it talked about before. So it, a lot of it is about sex. And it's also about friendship. And there's a lovely old man that she writes letters to. Something for everyone, really, to be honest. What kind of inspo did you have for writing about sex? Because obviously it's seen through... Sex writing is often seen through quite a heteronormative lens. Um, yeah. Did you go back to any like great sex writers or sex representations of the past? Or were you just kind of going from your own experience? Well, mostly I was going from my own experience. But I, was, I had once been to the Bad Sex Awards. And I learnt from the Bad Sex Awards that you should never use um, uh, similes or metaphors. Because that's where it starts going horribly wrong. Um, the, one of the, the bad sex awards I was at, there was one that was like, he pinned her to the bed like a lepidopterist pinning a butterfly. And it was like, ooh, that's not very, very sexy. It's not really. And there's another one that was like, he burrowed into her like a rat through sand. And again, it was like, that's not really when I, not very sexy. So I just thought, you have to be frank. You know, not, not mess around, say exactly what's happening. This is my theory about writing about sex. So that's what I, that's how I went about it. Um, and... I, I think Sarah Waters writes sex super, super well, so I kind of went back to her novels. Um, but I, I was also kind of inspired by, um, I, I saw Lena Dunham in conversation, she's been cancelled now, I know, but you know, she, her program, her G Girls was a really seminal show and was so honest about women's lives and women's bodies and, mm. and sex, and that I found that very inspiring as well. Great, well thank you very much and best of luck for the paperback version. Thank you so and much. I'll be reading it very shortly. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Bye. Kate then joined Paul on stage to talk about autobiographical writing and the kinds of people you really don't want reading your work. Spoiler, your wife's mum is quite high on the list. Like, like your mother will never read your work, don't they? And uh, my mother has only just read my book. But because she came, she didn't have a head to all to lean against. <laughs> anyway, she has read it now, and so has my dad. And they both quite enjoyed it. So that's something. Anyway. <laughs> I, I, I find the distinction... Um, I, obviously, I've been a journalist for years, and I'm a writer, and I'm a literary event. Well, so I'm very involved in the book world. And I find the distinctions between literary fiction and commercial fiction quite arbitrary, quite snobbish and yeah. quite, quite objectionable often actually. Um, it seems to me, and I'm not meaning this in a, in a, in a, as an offensive way, but it seems to me that your book is very clearly pitched in a commercial way. Yeah. And I think that's actually quite radical because I think to have a book that is celebrating queer women's sex in the way that your book does, which is very unapologetic, without counting it in quasi-literary yeah. way, like it's set in the 1870, so it's therefore safely in the, the past. It's actually quite, it's a very radical thing to do. Yeah. Um, were, were you conscious of this as you were writing, or was this, was this something that you were... I don't know. I Well, I, I suppose I thought I haven't seen this before, and so I want to write about it. So you want, to write, you want to write the book you've not read? Yeah, I want to write a book. I, I just want to write... I've started writing it as a very Bridget Jonesy novel, just very like silly and light, and then I thought, no, I need to write the truth. Um, and I went to see um, Catelyn Rand and Lena Dunham in conversation years ago. This is, took me a really long time to write this book. Um, and um, uh, they were talking about it. was really inspiring. I know that no one likes Lena Dunham anymore, but I was very inspired at the time. Um, I, just, I kind of realised I needed to completely rewrite the book. But honestly, so that's what I've tried to do is to make it yeah. extremely frank. And it's amazing because I'm, I'm not a person actually that talks about sex very much. 
Um, but for some reason, when I sat down and wrote it, it was literally just coming out of my hands. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's kind of exposing, but I don't mind because I think that's exciting. Like the stuff that I like to read is the stuff that is the most true and the most exposing and the most stuff I like to see, like your act, is like exciting because it's on the edge and I think that's yeah that's the kind of stuff that I enjoy so that's what I want to what's what I want to give and when I was reading it back the first time I read it back I was like oh my god obviously I have to take out all these fucking sex scenes um, but then I realised that they were the best bits of the book um, you know because they were the the truest and the most kind of shocking of the book and what's my mum going to think about this when she reads it what's my what am I you know did you, did yeah. you have that hanging over your head yeah I mean I used to be burlesque so I mean, I, I, I don't know. I You've guess already broken those. I've already, already broken those <laughs> things. I don't know. I, I guess I'm lucky because I do have my parents are quite liberal, so I didn't. I, I didn't think they were going to disown me or anything like that. I did. I was a bit embarrassed. My wife's mum is a Scottish Catholic head teacher. Um, that was a bit tricky. So, so the mother-in-law may have been a problem. Yeah, but she again, she read it. But again, she just took the bit. She like there's an old man in it, a really sweet old man. So she just focused on him. <laughs> and, uh, oh, Eric, oh, oh, Eric's, you know, spoiler alert, you know, something happens to Eric. So that was the only bit she ever talked about, which is like very, really quite minor. Um, and embarrassingly, I was in the dentist the other day, and he, while examining my teeth, was like, I'm reading your book at the moment. <laughs> did, he mention, did he mention the fist thing at all? No. No, I just, I don't know, I don't know what to quite say to that. Um, and also, my next book is about being donor conceived. And while writing this book, I discovered I am donor conceived. I discovered my biological father. Anyway, not a whole lot of different story. But anyway, he wrote me an email the other day. and was like, I'm in the middle of reading your book. He's like, oh. anyway, so, you know, after having written it, I've realised it's out there. Every time someone meets me, it's the first thing they do, and it is it, that makes me feel quite exposed. That is fine. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> like, so, it's like when I go on first dates and I'm trying to be like, I'm going to give away like my real, like, I'm so confident that they've read the book and realise that I'm a completely psychotic mess. <laughs> and it's just like, so I'm just trying to be like, I'm really chilled, I don't care when you read yeah. the book, I'm just like, the guy doesn't call me back, I'm like quite suicidal. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> but it must be a bit like what it's like to be famous, not famous, but you know what I mean, where there's like, there's, it's a, it's a, it's an unequal power dynamic because they know a lot about me. Well, they think they know a lot. They think they know a lot about me, but also they do. Yeah. But, it was all going so well, and then we had a surprise visit in the pop socked persona of Barbara Brownskirt, people's poet of Penge. I take absolutely no responsibility for the next seven minutes of this podcast. Well, I don't think this is quite set up for my poetry reading. You don't need to interrupt me, Paul Burston. Thank you very much, everybody, and welcome to the all-night open mic night. Um, all right, poetry knows no boundaries. Poetry knows no 10pm rule. So, um, 
I am here with 103 poems for you tonight. And um, yes, some of them are from Judy, some collected uh, poetry by Barbara Brownskirt, which is my name. Oh! Thank you. And um, every year this is being submitted for the Polari Prize <laughs> by myself and a, uh, my landlady. And um, Paul Burston, you know what's wrong with the short list, don't you? And the long list. Anyway, um, yes, my name is Barbara Brownskirt. Poet of the South London people, and also poet in residence of the 197 bus stop on Croydon Road in Penge. Does anyone know Penge? We're all from Penge. the word and it was Judy 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 Dench <laughs> Ten hours I stood there you walked past me on the carpet I was on the pavement not red but grey, I watched you go by with yet another sigh. Judy, 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 Dench. Your smile and crinkly, twinkly eyes, your little hairstyle high on your head, sexy grandma. To me, you are wife material. Denchi, 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 Judy. How you make me want to clenchy. And I would like to travel my hand over your wobbly belly to cup the young Denchi, thirsty, drenchy, a cup full of Dench. Quenched, time all spent. Judy, 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 Dench. Vegan shoes. <laughs> <laughs> the old 
Velcrow fastening, hiking sandal, 22 centimetres from heel to toe, green and clogged with mud, I will not let them go. They sit in my wardrobe from the final walk, where we ate some chi- corn chili con carne, and you said, I want to talk. You said your shoes were cruelty free just before you walked out on me. To explore Yorkshire, you said, when really it was Hebden Bridge. (laughs) We know what goes on there, in the woolen trousers of women who do not use perfume or mascara because of castorium obtained from the anal sex gland of the beaver. (laughs) Civic substance scraped from the glands in the anal pouch of the cat. said my hairbrush was made from pig hair and my soap made from hard animal fat squeezed from the kidneys of prawns and my duvet the plucking of a duck you said it was duck rape you said it as if you were the plucked duck I sometimes wear your cruelty free shoes in a vain attempt to be close to you. I eat cheese, free cheese, so I can be inside you, traveling down your digestive system along the miles of your colon. I wear all organic socks, so I can be close to your ankles. And I still say, I do, I do, I do. Although you do not ask. Because another woman has filled my shoes and she wears Converse, which are about as vegan as a bacon sandwich with Worcester sauce made from anchovies eyes. Well, I had a fabulous evening and I think many of the audience and the guests did too. But why take my word for it? I stood in a socially distanced way by the door and asked a couple of the audience members what they thought of the evening. And here it is. The first person I speak to is the actor and drag king Francesca Reed. And the other two interviews are from two of her mates who Fran thankfully also pushed in my direction. Obviously things are a bit chaotic by this point in the evening because we'd had quite a lot of wine and the main takeaway is that Barbara Brown's skirt is very popular with the ladies. So don't despair Barbara, there might still be hope. Honestly, to see people enjoying the arts again was phenomenal. So many interesting voices from so many different backgrounds. Obviously, wonderfully queer. I laughed, I felt things, and I would love to come again. It's really unusual as well, and a little bit highbrow. You know, I'm a performer myself, and I'm not always doing the most highbrow stuff. So this was nice. It was like proper art, innit? Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the evening. I thought I thought everyone was amazing. I mean, I've seen Barbara before, so I know her work, and I love her. Although I do worry about her because I, I think she is quite, you know, she's quite upset about her ex-girlfriend even though they a long time ago. So anything relating to drag is fascinating to me. So it's amazing to see the first act and uh, fisting. <laughs> I said, I mean, 
podcast focuses on that was your first live event in several months and we've spoken about the challenges of promoting an event in a small window of time while remaining socially distanced keeping within the curfew that sort of thing how did you choose the three artists who performed well i i knew that i wanted to showcase a an author from each of the shortlists um and because of the situation, because of um, the circumstances and, and everything, it needed to be somebody that was um, London-based who could get there easily. So that kind of narrowed it down a bit. Um, and I wanted there to be, for them to be to be quite a, you know, diverse within themselves. So I chose um, Amru Al-Khadi from the Polari First Book Prize shortlist and Kate Davis from the Polari Prize shortlist. Um, both of whom thankfully said yes, and they were they were free and keen to do it. And then I thought, well, it'd be quite fun to throw a sort of, you know, a sort of spanner in the works. So I invited Barbara Brownskirt to join in. Um, it's always fun to have um, Barbara on, especially when, especially when there's a sort of serious... Um, theme to the event in, in you know in, in this case it was it was quite a, you know an auspicious event because we had two shortlisted um authors on the stage and then of course you have barbara who's never likely to be shortlisted for anything so <laughs> i thought that I, I just that, that's just my sense of humor i thought it'd be funny to have her there and she um she was she was she was willing and game and she and she was terrific as well she put on a really great performance so they all did. It was a really, really great evening. Uh, I thought everyone really stepped up and um, and delivered the goods. And I think there was such there was such an air of anticipation at the event when I got there, and I saw lots of regular faces, and you could see there was this sort of excitement because they hadn't been to an event since well, one of our events since since uh, February. So it was a long time. Um, so I think everyone rose to the occasion splendidly, and I was really proud of everyone. I thought it was a really, really top event. As Paul says, it was a special moment. And thank you all for listening to this record of that special moment with us. The Polari Prize winners will be announced from 5pm on October the 15th via the prize's Twitter feed. So do check out Polari Prize on Twitter and also Paul Burston, the Polari Salon, me, Sophia Blackwell. We hope to be back with you soon. But in the meantime, there's a lot of wonderful books to go out and buy. So support your local bookshops, support your artists, give them lovely reviews. And we hope to be back with you very soon.